All right, so conquering compromise. Uh, Daniel, when he was taken in one of the waves of the uh, captivity as King Nebuchadnezzar descended on uh, Jerusalem, I told you as we did an introduction to the book of Daniel, there were three waves starting in 605, then 597, and finally 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was leveled to the ground. Three waves of captives were taken prior to the city being destroyed, and Daniel may have been among those early uh, captors, and he was taken to Babylon to a foreign land. As uh, scholars have calculated his age about that time and of his companions, they estimate, and I think on good grounds, that he was about 14 when he was taken. Remember, in Jewish families, when you turn 13, you become a man. So you have what's called a bar mitzvah. You become literally a son of the law. And you become culpable or responsible for yourself at the age of 13. You're supposed to know the Torah. You're supposed to be able to you know, take on uh, those things which belong to a man. And that's pretty young, you know, comparatively speaking. If you look at our culture right now where you know, kids pretty much live with their parents until they're 35. So, but anyway, we won't go there tonight. And so uh, Daniel, even though he was young in our own chronology, he would be considered a man in Jewish thought. And he would have probably gone through some sort of rite of passage. And right after that, say about within a year of that ceremony, of that formal rite of passage, and I would say to you fathers that having some sort of ceremony or rite of passage for your sons and daughters is a good idea. Talk to me about that later and I'll give you some ideas. But Daniel was taken. Now, the training period for the indoctrination and assimilation in a foreign land that took place was a three-year training as far as Babylon was concerned. So three years, they tried to assimilate you into the culture. And you remember some things that they tried to do. For example, they introduced them to their school and their religious philosophy and occult practices and even a name change. All intended to assimilate you into this new culture so that you could be like them. And of course, they had taken some of the holy vessels Nebuchadnezzar did, taken them from the holy temple into the temple of his God, saying, our God's stronger than your God. And we looked at all that Daniel as a captor would have gone through some 500 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon in some sort of march, maybe with something, you know, poked through your nose as you're being pulled along or maybe through your lip as you're being pulled to a foreign land. Just a brutal situation. And uh, I asked a, a congregation like this many years ago when I preached the book of Daniel this question, and I want to address it to you parents. Do you think that your teenager right now, with how well they're grounded in their faith, would take a similar stand in a Babylon kind of experience as Daniel and his friends did? You think they're ready? Have we put enough of the faith, enough of the steel of the faith in their souls, if I can put it that way, to where they could make a stand in the face of a fiery furnace or in the face of a lion's den or the like. Something to consider when we consider how we raise our children and what's really important and what's really going to last. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be in sports. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a good balance. But I am saying, and I'll, I'll address the dads, that they should know that you love Jesus Christ first and foremost above golf, above baseball, above your favorite TV show, car racing, whatever it is that you are into, your motorcycle, 
I'm going to try to reach everybody. Uh, let's see. What, what else can I name? Racket sports. So I think it's important. Uh, I remember years ago watching a video. Uh, it was done by some fathers. They were being interviewed. And, you know, one of the dads said, honestly, you know, I, I know my kid knows I love baseball. I know my kid knows I have these favorite teams. But I want to make sure my son, my daughter, knows that Jesus Christ is the most important thing, the most important one in my life. And I don't think that you have to try to manufacture that. If it's true, they're going to see it. If it's true, it's going to come out in your life. Now, while the book of Daniel is largely about the sovereignty of God, and let me just explain, and I'm going to just jump ahead to Daniel 4 to show you something, because I do believe that this is a potentially a theme verse for the book. Uh, move ahead to Daniel 4 for a second. The sovereignty of God is at the heart of the book of Daniel. Let me explain. When we say that God is sovereign, we're talking about that he is the ultimate ruler. That if someone was ultimately in charge, it is God. God is sovereign. He's the ultimate ruler. Take a look. Um, This is uh, Nebuchadnezzar up on his balcony. He is uh, puffing himself up, everything that he's done, everything that he's built. And here's what it says. Daniel 4.31, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind and you and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time, many believe seven years will pass over you until you recognize That the Most High is ruler. Here's an idea of sovereignty. The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. And he bestows it on whomever he wishes. Daniel 4.32 is what I want you to note, especially the end of the verse. The Most High God, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is ruler over the realm of mankind. And he bestows power office, success, prosperity on whomever he wishes. That is sovereignty. However, if you go back to Daniel chapter 1, I'm going to show you the tension. Here's the tension. Daniel in the face of having to compromise to the Babylonian ways. Maybe he saw the commercial, when in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. Maybe he saw the commercial, whatever happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. I mean, against all those things that could have come his way, against all the pressure, all that had happened to him, maybe things that could have caused him to wonder if the God of Israel was the true God at all. Daniel made a radical decision. Daniel, Daniel 1.8, made up his mind that he would not defile himself. Now, Bible students, here's what I want to show you with the tension. Even though God is sovereign and the ultimate ruler, in our theological uh, framework, we would say, probably all of us, we believe in the sovereignty of God that does not extract or remove your responsibility. Daniel made up his mind not to defile himself. Now, some people take the sovereignty of God that God's ultimately in control and say, well, then I guess what I do doesn't really matter anyway. No, what you do matters, and what you do you will be held accountable for. 
And someone would look at maybe Daniel 1.8 and what follows and say, man, this only had to do with food choices. It seems like maybe in our experience of life, relatively, you know, insignificant. We're talking about, you know, meat and wine and, and as compared to maybe a, a, a kosher diet or vegetables or what have you. But it's much bigger than that. And we'll talk about that. But the first point I want you to see is though even though the theme of the book is the rulership of God, you are still responsible for your decision making. And you as an individual have been given a great gift, and it's called the gift of free will. And you have the chance, because you've been given a ability, you've been given a will, you've been given a brain, you've been given choices, you can make your choices, and you get to live with the significance of them, whether they're good or bad. And Daniel determined. He purposed in his heart. He resolved, if you have the NIV. If you have the New American Standard, it says he made up his mind. I think the New King James says he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. I want to say this to you as strongly as I can say it to you. If you decide before something comes your way, that you will not defile yourself, it will be much easier to deal with the dangling carrots in your face. You've got a purpose in your heart ahead of time. You've got to make up your mind that you are not going to defile yourself no matter what everybody else is doing. I mean, imagine how many captives do you think were taken over in each wave into Babylon? Thousands? Uh, there were probably people from other nations or people from Israel. How many people do you think compromised during Daniel's lifespan as he was there in Babylon? Probably just about everybody. In fact, when they stand before the 90-foot colossal statue that we'll see in Daniel chapter 3, everybody bows except those three young men. Everybody else is bowing, which tells you that compromise was running rampant in the land, just like it's running rampant Everywhere in our land, in our schools, uh, in our churches. And if you are going to resolve in your heart, you're going to purpose in your heart that you are not going to compromise, you're going to have to do that now before you're in a compromising situation. If you don't make up your mind now that you want to live a holy life, and look, this is the idea. The opposite of compromise is holiness. The opposite of compromise is godliness. It's contentment with where God has me and where I'm headed in terms of my walk with him. The opposite of compromise is holiness. Holiness, simply put, is to be set apart unto God for what he wants you to do and what he wants you to be. And you will be swimming against the tide if you make up your mind to do it. Have you? Have you made up your mind? I'm not going to assume in looking at a group of people like you tonight that you have. Some people might respond, 75%. <laughs> Depends on what day you ask me, Pastor Michael. If you ask me on Sunday between 10 and noon, I've made up my mind. You ask me on Monday at 6.30 a.m. before I've had my coffee? I remember uh, we were at our old location and there were some kids 
they were uh, sitting on the wall just by one of the driveways of the church, and they were over there smoking cigarettes. And so I looked out my office window, and I went, ah, an opportunity. And so I walked outside, and I addressed them, and I said, hey, what are you guys doing? Oh, well, we're over, we're over here, and we live over there, and we're at this girl's house, and the father came home and kicked us out of the house. <laughs> wow. Hmm. Well, where, where do you belong? Well, we're over in this city, and it's like three or four cities away. And we're waiting for a ride. And I said, okay, well, do you realize you're, you're sitting on the church wall here? This is a church. I'm Pastor Michael. Do you guys go to church? Oh, yeah, we, we go to church. <laughs> so what were you doing at that girl's house? Well, uh, you know, you know, <laughs> you know. You answer him, right? And then one of the kids said something to me. He goes, Church is for Sundays. And he said it like that. And it's kind of funny, but it's kind of sad. Because what, what we came to find out is they were up to no good, and the answer was church is for Sundays. I don't actually live it out. I just go to a building with my parents. And the question is, have you made up your mind? Oh, I know it takes some time. I, I know we're all in process. I know sometimes, you know, we, we get introduced to the faith. Some of you have grown up in a Christian home, and, and some, some people probably have to have a crisis of faith. Some people may have to come to a crossroads and decide if they've decided. And some, maybe every day we kind of have to redecide. <laughs> Amen? We have to be born again. Amen. But, but, but even though, even if we're born again, you have to decide to follow Jesus every day. No turning back, girl. <laughs> so, Daniel made up his mind that, verse 8, he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. We're back in Daniel 1.8. Or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile. The word defile could be translated soil, desecrate, or pollute himself. And if you do a little uh, homework in the lexicons, the Hebrew lexicon here, it speaks of a religious defilement. He did not want to pollute himself in terms of his faith before God. And so Daniel made up his mind. Now, is this a place where you should, should you die on this hill? You might ask Daniel if you're like one of his buddies. Is this the place that you want to make the stand when it comes to lunch? The lunch menu, man, we got problems here. <laughs> We're in Babylon. We ain't in Kansas anymore. Come on. But Daniel made up his mind. And Daniel seems to be the one who's leading the group. You're going to see it's all of them. But Daniel seems to be a leader within leaders. And he said, I don't want to defile myself. He made up his mind. So before him was the king's choice food, the wine which he drank. So Daniel sought permission from the commander of the officials, the man apparently directly over the captives. And I don't know what the conversation was like, but it, was, it may have started off with just something like this. I, I don't want to defile myself, man. I, there's laws from my land, and, and I want to be clean before my God. You do have to make up your mind. 
Psalm 101, verse 3 says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. Psalm 101, verse 3. Psalm 423, excuse me, uh, Proverbs 423 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Uh, The book of Hebrews says, Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Uh, There's scriptures that say, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. So even though I appreciate our sister here on the front row, I still would argue that it's still a decision that you make to put on the new man, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to put on the armor of God. Even though you're born again, you still have to put on the new man. You have to make a decision to put away the old And to walk in the new. And that's what Daniel had before him. That's what Moses had to face. That's what Abraham had to face. And interestingly enough, as I said to you last week, the book of Daniel, Daniel's name means God is my judge. Nebuchadnezzar's not my judge. The official over the captives is not my judge. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Remember I showed you Dan means judge and El is the name of God. And there's a tribe, the the tribe of Dan, which has the idea of judge, and E-L at the end of his name is the name of God. God is my judge. You're not my judge, Nebuchadnezzar. You're not my judge, king of the officials. God is my judge. But I will say to you that even though Daniel made this decision in the moment, it couldn't have been an easy decision. And I'll say to you that holiness and the road to holiness is for the most part, hard. (laughs) The holiness is hard. In school, in the workplace, when it comes to business ethics, when it comes to, you know, all kinds of things that come at us. It, It can be hard. But the more you do it, the more you just deal with the peer pressure and you decide that I want to please God first and foremost, I think it does get easier. Now notice what happens. Back to the sovereignty of God. Daniel decided God granted Daniel, Daniel 1.9, favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. It's like the writer wants us never to forget that even though Daniel decided God was the one giving him the grace. See, apart from Jesus, I can do how much? Nothing. So God was the one who gave Daniel favor and compassion. So I think it's reasonable when we are making decisions regarding holiness. We don't want to compromise. Uh, I often pray, as I pray over people, Lord, would you grant favor to this person? You know, would you grant them compassion? Would you, would you let them be a blessing and let others see Jesus in them? And so God honored Daniel's desire for holiness, and he will do the same for you. God will honor a desire for holiness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. Blessed are you. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be satisfied. You'll be blessed. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be a blessing. 1 Corinthians 10 is where I'd like to take you next. Hold your place in the book of Daniel. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It reads this way. 
It says, no temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, what does God provide? He provides the way out, the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. With, just park here for a second, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Every temptation is common to everyone. God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be too much for you without providing this, without providing a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So every temptation that comes your way, and by the way, it's not a sin to be tempted. You don't want to be silly about, if you turn back to the book of Daniel, don't put yourself in a situation of temptation. But if a temptation comes your way, and there it is, and it's like, you know, it's going to happen from time to time, just know that God says it's common to everybody, and there will be a way of escape. But a way of escape sounds to me like you still have to take it. Doesn't it? If there's a way out, if you were in a certain situation and there was a certain escape route or there was a certain way out, say there was a secret passage or a, a door or something like that, you still have to take the exit. God provides the lit sign, <laughs> arrow. But there is still this tension with God providing the way of escape, but you having to take the way of escape, right? So, again, you can see that combination. Now, back in Daniel 1.10, the commander of the officials, and Daniel took a risk here because the commander of the officials could have responded in any number of ways. Who knows? He might have just said, just go and kill this guy. We got plenty of young people from these lands. But the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid. <laughs> well, shouldn't Daniel have been afraid? But God has not given us a spirit of fear, but what? Power, love, and a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7. The commander of the official says, I'm afraid of my Lord the King, who has appointed your food and your drink, the, the yours plural. For why should he see your faces, probably addressing him and his friends and maybe others, looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. All of a sudden, the commander of the official is saying, I hear what you're saying, brother. But you don't know Nebi like I know Nebi. See, he's a little cranky. And if he finds out that you don't like his carne asada and his house wine, <laughs> he may have issues with me. And I am in no mood to forfeit my noggin, my head, to the king. I'm afraid. You've kind of shaken me, man. Maybe this was a request that he had never gotten before. Maybe there was nobody like Daniel that he ever ran into before. And so he said, I'm scared. This is, this is difficult. But Daniel said to the overseer, verse 11, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. There again we see uh, the Hebrew names of these four heroes. You got Daniel, we all know him. Then you have Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel proposed, he said, please test your servants for 10 days. 
Let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Now, I have an alternate proposal. I know you're afraid. I know you think Nebuchadnezzar will be mad, but your concern, sir, was that we'd look haggard, that we'd look unhealthy to the king. And, and I have a proposal. Here's my proposal. Let's do a 10-day test. You give us veggies and water. The other young men can have the delicacies, the, the meat and the wine. And we'll see how things go. Now, to back up for a second, the meat that was served in the Babylonian Empire, just like happened in the Greek world and the Roman world, was often sacrificed to the false gods. And as you do some studies in the background of Babylon, it's more than likely that the meats that were served at dinner tables were sacrificed to gods. And I'm talking about now false gods and goddesses. Now, Paul in the New Testament addresses this issue, and he says, look, if you went to the meat market and you bought a piece of meat and you don't know, you know, you, you found some steak on sale, it's $2.99 a pound, whatever it is, and, and you don't know and you eat the steak and it was put before some statue, Paul says, you're good. But if you know and your conscience bothers you or... If you're okay with it, but someone next to you says, did you know they sacrificed that before that false? Then Paul says, don't eat it. Don't eat it if your conscience bothers you and don't eat it if it would stumble a brother. He says, if I would eat something or drink something that would ever stumble a brother, then I, I won't do it. And I think we're all, we're all familiar with that. And so Daniel had... The kosher idea, because the, the blood had to be drained from the meat, and there was, there was certain animals that were unclean on the Jewish menu, so to speak. Daniel didn't want to defile himself, so that's part of that. So he says, let's have a test. How many of you would vote for this? Vegetables and water for the next 10 days. How many of you are willing to take that on right now? Anybody? No? Say, oh, man. Vegetables and water? How many of you hid your vegetables from your parents when you were young or you fed them to the dog under the table? <laughs> Confession's good for the soul, right? Boy, you ate your broccoli so quickly tonight, Junior. The dog's underneath the table going, <laughs> with the stalk sticking out. Vegetables and, remember, he's still a teenager. Teenagers and vegetables? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> now, the word for vegetables is an interesting word in Hebrew. It can include grains. Some years ago, we did a Daniel fast for 21 days in the church, and part of it was a food fast. But um, the Hebrew word can refer to wheat or barley. It could be fresh vegetables, including grains. So uh, some years ago, we did this Daniel diet, and here's what we got to eat. Brown rice, oats, barley, all fruits and all vegetables, including potatoes. We could eat seeds, nuts, and sprouts. We could eat legumes like pinto beans, dried beans, split peas, lentils, black-eyed peas, lima beans, navy beans, kidney beans. But we couldn't eat meat, white rice, all fried foods, carbonated beverages, alcohol, refined sugar, sugar substitutes, all products containing white flour, all products containing preservatives or additives, and all eggs and dairy were off the table. 
Now, those are some sweeping things, right? And when we did that fast, people discovered the power of salsa. <laughs> salsa can make a lot of things taste better that don't taste so good on their own. So Daniel says, okay, well, let's do this. You let us eat this menu and let our appearance be observed in your presence, the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So here's the 10-day test. And so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. All right, so the food is served and uh, these four over here, they, yeah, that's what they get. They get broccoli, carrots, and a glass of water. They get asparagus, they get whatever. And it went on for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better, verse 15, and they were fatter <laughs> than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. Now, the Hebrew word, probably better, translated in the NIV says, at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Now imagine this, if you've ever gone to a nice restaurant and let's just say that you had a nice meal that you don't normally eat, maybe it included some of these things. Can you imagine eating that every day for 10 days? I can't. You know, there's meals for special occasions and then there's kind of your go-to diet. I don't know what your go-to diet is, but it's probably some staples that you are used to eating every day, right? Can you imagine if every day you had uh, a steak and wine every day, every day, every day? And plus, these are teenagers. So you could imagine. Daniel was wise about how he approached this. And at the end of 10 days, well, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Maybe the young men who were eating the royal food were walking around like, <laughs> And Daniel's friends were like, broccoli, spinach. Dun, 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 dun. Isn't that what made Popeye strong? Just a little spinach. And so God honored them and they were healthy. And the overseer, 16, continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. Note it that the 10-day test went way beyond 10 days. The, once he saw the results, he kept giving them vegetables and water. So I'm hoping that the vegetable diet included some sort of grains, like you could eat oatmeal or have a piece of toast or something. But he continued to give them a, what we call a kosher diet. He kept them away from food sacrifice to idols and all of the other stuff that went with it. And these four youths, verse 17, God gave, again, the sovereignty of God, the omniscience of God, the power of God. God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Now, within verse 17, you can see God gave. There are uh, sections in the New Testament that says God gave. God gave some as apostles and prophets. Pastors and teachers, the evangelists, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. God gave certain leaders, certain giftings to the church 
to equip the saints to do the ministry, not to have the saints listen to sermons and go home. God gave pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth for the equipping of the saints to do the ministry. And praise God that so many of you are doing ministry. You're not just listening to the Word of God. You're actually doing ministry. And that's a blessing. God gave knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. My point is this. Notice that God can bless your intellect. Now, I don't think that means you don't study. Uh, some people have done that whole thing. You know, they, they don't study for the test, and here it comes, and they're like, oh, Lord, please impart to me the knowledge of how to do these fractions and calculations in the name. <laughs> you in trouble. Because God does not bless laziness. We've heard the story of the pastor who took the approach that he didn't need to study, but the New Testament says that a, a pastor has to uh, demonstrate that he's approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But he took this philosophy, no, the Holy Spirit will just give you what you need, and the Holy Spirit does give us, does bless us. But again, we have the sovereignty of God, and we still have responsibility. We're supposed to study. Do our homework. We should study like it totally depends on us and preach like it totally depends on God. Because it does. But God does ask us to study. So he's in the front row and he keeps telling the worship team, play another song, I don't have it. Play another song, I don't have it. They play six songs. Play another song, I don't have it. Seven songs. Play another song, I don't have it. Well, eight or nine songs have gone by and the pastor's desperate now. Oh, Lord, speak to me. What should I tell the people this morning? And the Lord speaks to the pastor on the front row and says, go up there and tell them you didn't study. Play another song. <laughs> First Corinthians 12, 11 says, but one and the same spirit works all things distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Notice in verse 17, you have God giving the blessing of intellect, intelligence, branches of literature and wisdom. You could call that academia. <clears throat> and yet Daniel also had a spiritual gift. These would all be spiritual blessings. But he also understood all kinds of visions and dreams, which we're going to see later in the book. In fact, in the next chapter, we're going to see Daniel have the gift of interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar is going to say, not only do I want you to tell me what my dream means, but I want you to tell me what my dream was. And the magicians are in their, you know, nightgowns and <laughs> pajamas. King, nobody's ever asked any magician anything like this. Tell us what you dreamed, and then we'll tell you what it means. And Nebuchadnezzar said, nope. Not only are you going to tell me what the dream means, you're going to tell me what I dreamed. Nobody could ever know what you dreamed, king. Come on. Off with their heads. <laughs> That's it. But Daniel's going to save him. But how did he get the gift? God gave. Verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every spiritual gift. Every gift of intellect. Every gift and ability to serve. To speak. 
to execute anything. A man would have nothing, a woman would have nothing unless it had first been given to them from heaven. So whatever your gift is, if you're good at sports, if you're good at math, if you're a good business person, if you, whatever, whatever it is that you're good at, God gave you that gift. Make sure you give them thanks for it. Make sure after you're able to accomplish something good or something beneficial, you pause and say, thank you, Lord. We pray a lot before things. We don't do a whole lot of praying after things. We do a lot of praying before we need God's help. We say, help me, help me, help me. And then something good happens. And then I don't know how often we, we leave, we give the blessing. Remember the 10 lepers? They were all healed. How many of the lepers came back to thank the Lord? One, that's 10%. And if you like Raul Reese impressions, <laughs> Raul Reese cannot say leper, he says leopard. And so he says, only one of the leopards came back, man. <laughs> that's little Raul Reese. For I'm not sure if that's actually Raul Reese, but somebody that drives a Chevy, man. Anyway. So God gave, God gave, God gave, God gives to us. And at the end of verse 18, Verse 18, then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, we see earlier it was three years, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. So they went to a three-year, you could call it Daniel at college, one of the uh, commentaries of years gone by. The author, I think it's William Taylor, says Daniel at college and basically uses those three years to kind of draw the analogy of a young man, young woman going away to college and having to you know, make their way. And then he's presented before King Nebuchadnezzar, along with others. Can you imagine that day? Okay, here you are, man. You went through all the schooling, all the training, and everybody comes in before King Nebuchadnezzar, and there he is. Analyzing, weighing, kind of like, impress me. And they're presented before the king. And the king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's personal service. There was no one compared to these four. No one was like them. Nebuchadnezzar apparently was asking them questions. He was maybe throwing out little tests. He was asking them to maybe to solve a riddle or give them insight about a math equation or whatever he asked them. And at the end of it, Nobody was as impressive as these young men. You see, when you know the God who made the universe, when you're walking with him, when he's imparting gifts and intelligence to you, do you think anybody is going to be beyond what you can offer? I think not. Remember Joseph in Egypt who walked with God and overcame temptation. Same thing. Whatever he, wherever he was, he was blessed and he was a blessing. And as for every matter of wisdom, verse 20, and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And this will later bring up some controversy and cause them to want to get Daniel in trouble, which we'll see in chapter 6. These young men in every matter, verse 20, 
If you have good biblical knowledge and you're walking in the Holy Spirit, you're going to be in good shape. You're going to get the best out of your education. You're going to get the best. You're going to to really be head and shoulders above everybody because you have God. I mean, how could you be better than if you have God? And so, look at every matter of wisdom, understanding. The king obviously spoke with them for quite some time. Maybe he took the numbers and whittled them down like we kind of do when we're looking at someone for a position. Maybe we start off with 20 candidates and then it's 10, then we're down to five. Maybe it was something like that. And he found them better, 10 times better than all the magicians and conjurers in all his realm. And Daniel, remember, only about 17 to 18 years old, healthy in body, soul, and mind. Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Let me read a little bit from my notes as we conclude. Daniel lived and and influenced the court during the life of four emperors, Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Belshazzar, and Cyrus. Cyrus the Persian conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. That means Daniel held his position until the end of the Babylonian period. Daniel would live to see the first captives return to Jerusalem in 538 B.C. Remember, he's taken in 605. He's a teenager, so he lives into his 90s as basically one of the inner circle of the court of multiple emperors or kings with God's favor. Daniel saw the first captives return, and he constantly lived in the grace of God. Question. Are you in a place of responsibility and wondering, wondering how long you can hold out? Fear not. The same God who called you is able to make you continue until you complete the task he has assigned you. Or as, da- as uh, Paul puts it in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. But then he says, now work out what God is working in. Now, go to Daniel 6.20, and I'm going to ask Shane if you would come on up uh, and the rest of the team. Daniel 6.20, just to show you Daniel's staying power, says these words. Daniel 6.20. And when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you, what? You constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Now we know the answer is going to be, yes, king, I'm here. God shut the mouths of the kitties. Praise the Lord. I'm sure he's having a private prayer service down there, right? Praise God. Petting the lion. Oh, you're a nice lion. <laughs> nice kitty. Yeah, kitty, kitty. <laughs> right? Now we know what happened afterwards. As soon as the, the people who tried to turn Daniel in were being lowered down, it was over. But the king said of Daniel, he said, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, Daniel 6.20, been able to deliver you from the lions? The answer is emphatically yes. Your God, whom you constantly serve. What was Daniel's legacy in Babylon? 
conquering compromise. Faithful. Not perfect, because we've all sinned and we all, what? Fall short of the glory of God. We know Daniel was a human. We know he was a sinner. We know, even though there's no record of a certain sin, he was a man. He had his struggles. I'm sure he probably had moments of doubt. But Daniel's testimony was he was the servant of the living God. And I think you can see the implication for me and for you. Am I? That's what I want to be. Oh, God, help me. <laughs> help me to stay true. Help me to be resolute. Help me to remain true. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the precious people who have come tonight. Thank you for the book of Daniel. It's just so rich and so beautiful. What a great example, Daniel. Daniel's still speaking to so many people about his resolute faith, about his commitment to the, the God that, you know, at the moment that uh, he was taken from his homeland, he could have made so many excuses. He could have had so many reasons to compromise. He could have said, you know what, I, I don't even know if there's a God. I, I, I don't know if what my parents told me was true. But he knew you. And he was faithful. And Lord, I, I pray that each one of us who are hearing the sound of my voice tonight would be found faithful. It's required of a steward that he be found faithful. But Lord, I do know that this room is filled with humans, with people who have made mistakes, people like me. And I know that even though we are challenged by Daniel, sometimes we need the hope of a, a new beginning. And there, are, there may be folks here who have not even met Jesus yet and they don't even know what this is like, but they can. And so I'm going to ask you just to take a few moments here just to let God's word percolate into your soul. If you're a Christian already, then it's just about maybe making some decisions or new decisions about your, your direction, your trajectory. If you're not a Christian, the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust in him. Trust in his work at the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his shed blood for your sin. Trust him, believe on him, repent of your sin and receive him as Lord and Savior. Maybe you're a prodigal. Maybe you've, you've gone the wrong way and you, you want to come home and, and you want to get right with God. Now's the time. So whatever business you need to do with the Lord, if it's just a deeper level of commitment, if it's a recommitment, or if it's a first time trusting in him for salvation, if, if you're not a Christian, something like this, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Thank you that you came into this world for me to save me on a mission of love. Thank you that you died on that cross for my sin. Thank you that you rose from the dead. I place my trust in you as my Lord, my Savior, my King, and my friend. I repent of my sin, and I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Please save me. Please change me from the inside out. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.